Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Kareem Webb. He is CEO of Fourth Movement. We're going to talk about what's going on in the cannabis space in terms of really helping making sure we've got the right people involved, make sure that we've got a well-diverse, well-represented community of business owners, business investors, founders, folks involved in senior leadership, really all up and down the organization. For those people that are reasonably familiar with cannabis, we've been grappling with all sorts of social equity and social justice issues really since the beginning, really since for decades before that. But you know, as we've kind of gone to a legalized industry, you know, it's been a, a, a very big topic. A very important topic. Unfortunately, I would say one that I don't think we've solved. Uh, I think we're doing some good work, but uh, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done. So I'm excited to have this conversation. I think it's a sorely needed conversation, one that I think we need to have more often. And I'm really excited to have Kareem on the program. With that, Kareem, welcome. Well, thank you, Bruce. I'm grateful for the opportunity to chat with you and your listeners and uh, for the platform that you created here. So let's dive in. I'm ready. Yeah, excellent. So sort of before we kind of dig into the meat of our topic here, give us a little sense of your background. Like how did, you know, professionally, what were you doing? How did you get involved in cannabis? What's the backstory? Give us a little insight. Yeah, certainly. So I'm a really blessed guy. My parents are, are McDonald's franchisees and have 
pretty significant footprint, 16 units in Southern California. Yeah. And so I grew up in that business from 11 years old on kind of working right next to people who became my friends, who were employees of my folks, went to college, worked at McDonald's. So that was my background. In my early 30s, I became a franchisee of Buffalo Wild Wings and have four units here in L.A. And one in the Crenshaw District, which is, you know, kind of synonymous with being in the middle of an under-resourced area, kind of famous part of Los Angeles. And that lent itself to getting civically engaged, sat on a lot of boards, taught entrepreneur classes at some inner city high schools, et cetera, which is how I began to know the policymakers in town. So the African-American city council people, state representatives, the folks in Congress, et cetera, we would end up being at the same place at the same time around issues, especially around at-risk youth and things about really improving outcomes in the African-American community. And so when the idea of social equity came up, when I really wasn't looking to get involved in cannabis at all, a city councilman called me and said, hey man, the way you've done business in Buffalo Wild Wings and how you show up in LA, I really hope that you will take a look at getting involved in this social equity space. And so I began to take a look at it. It was fascinating to me, not so much because of cannabis, but because of this limited license landscape and the ability to kind of leverage what I knew from the franchise world to, to help other people be successful in a proven concept. Yeah, it's, it's interesting kind of uh, transfer of experience. I mean, I'm curious what, as you got involved in the cannabis phase, what were you able to transfer kind of directly what did you have to kind of massage and modify and, and what just did not work? I mean, I'm, I'm curious in terms of transferable skills, you know, how that went for you. Well, I think the, the thing that's most transferable is people development. So, you know, in the in the restaurant space, generally, certainly in casual dining or in quick service, the majority of the folks that you work with are, are entry level and you really hone and develop a skill for helping people see beyond their circumstances in order for them to produce at a high level or execute you know, against, you know, any objective or operating procedure. And that is transferable um, with respect to the opportunity around social equity and operating dispensaries at a high level, for sure. What hasn't been as transferable is there's specific models around franchising. You have to really adapt, be able to adapt that model in a way that, that fits policy. So, the regulation around cannabis is is significantly different to so the way, you know, and then the federal illegality and its impact on access to capital, you know, create some significant differences. As a, as a franchisee of a national proven concept, you can pretty much go to any bank on the street. And if you got 30% down, you're going to get, you know, 70% loan to value to build out that business. Obviously in cannabis, that's not the case. And so you got to be more creative in terms of how to prove that this is a sustainable model and attract capital that allows there to be enough profitability so that your partners and operating partners on the social equity side receive the kind of income that's consistent with really equity. Yeah. Uh, and it's, um, I mean, I was fascinated on the, you know, finding capital in the cannabis space. You know, on one hand, I think everyone thinks that, oh, well, there's just all this money flying around. There's so much, you know, available capital in cannabis. And the fact is, I think most business owners, most entrepreneurs, most CEOs, you know, struggle with finding either enough capital or the right kind of capital or, you know, figuring out how to structure it so that it's, it's going to be doable for the lenders. Talk to me a little bit about what we've learned about how capital works in the cannabis space that's different than other industries. Well, one, you know, you know, I think in terms of the economy, things are always shifting to some degree, the stock market, et cetera. But in the franchise space, you know, generally, and certainly over the last 15 years, 
you know, interest rates have been very stable. And if you've got a proven concept, again, access to the capital is there. In the cannabis space, you know, what it was two years ago is significantly different than what it was a year ago. And there's even a shifting narrative now. Two years ago, we went to MJ BizCon and there's really a bidding war to be, you know, involved in our concept. A year ago, with kind of the collapse and a, a lot of the troubles of some of the um, publicly traded companies, you know, I think that that negatively impacted the entire industry in terms of their performance and how capital really tightened in our industry. And then now, you know, it seems like distressed assets is the name of the game. So if you if you don't price yourself as a distressed asset, then you're not as attractive. And so the available capital now seems to be looking for deals that are distressed to be able to grow kind of footprints. Yeah. And so, and so let's talk about the social equity, social justice side of this. I mean, I guess, why is this such a big deal in cannabis, you know, more so or differently so than other industries? Give us your take on, on why this is important. Well, certainly, you know, listen, everybody across the country used cannabis equally, right? And people actually sold cannabis equally. So as a percentage of the population is about, you know, it's 13% of the 13% of the population is African American, about the same percentage of African Americans consume cannabis as white folks um, or Latinos, etc. And about the same percentage of African Americans sold cannabis. But on the criminal justice side and the the negative ramifications of the application of criminal justice is very disproportionate in terms of what actually happened, who got arrested, who went to jail, whose families and whose communities were were destroyed because of this disproportionate application of criminal justice around cannabis. And so I think what social what, what community has come out and said is, wait a minute, we can't now legalize this thing and and not allow people to participate who come from communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the application of arrest and the criminal justice system. That's not right. And so, you know, one way to repair those communities is to give people from those communities the opportunity to do business. You know, obviously what we believe is that it's incumbent upon policymakers and all of us that are participants in the industry to make sure the folks that get those licenses are in a position to leverage each one of these limited license opportunities um, to get the biggest bang for the buck in terms of revenue and the character of the operator that will reinvest in communities that have been harmed. Yeah. And so, and I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like the programs, and I know we've got all sorts of different programs in different states, and I'd be curious to get your take on, on how you see you know, some of those working differently or better than others. But I mean, it, the general idea behind these programs, do you feel like it's the right path? Do you feel like it, it will, you know, has the potential to actually have the impact that it's designed to have? No, I think by and large, the, the programs have been set up for folks to get licenses that will become distressed assets because okay. the individuals who, you know, are getting licensed, not in every case, but in most cases, don't have the capacity to really be competitive in a highly competitive, highly regulated, highly capital intensive space. And so those assets will become distressed and folks probably who weren't you know, originally intended to get the opportunity will end up with those licenses to do business. So it's just a bit basically, it sort of gets people off the starting line, I guess, but it ends up that being really difficult to finish the race. And so it is kind of, it, un, it loses its power, it loses its ultimate impact in, in the execution of it. So I guess in terms of how these programs are designed, so, so do you, I mean, clearly the execution of these is an issue too, but what would you change about the program designs or, or what would you hope to see in terms of changes in these types of programs 
that would start to affect this in a more systemic, long-term, you know, really address the issue more, more systematically? I think really the, the policymakers are asking the wrong question when they're designing policy, right? So we're, we're, what's happening, first and foremost, the policymakers' concern is getting reelected and, and addressing the concerns of the constituents and their constituents on the social equity side are concerned with the opportunity to do business, right? But that is the opportunity to do business is not necessarily what's in the interest of community. It's who gets the opportunity to do business and are they set up to make the most of each one of these opportunities? And so I, I think that policy has got to be designed you know, around ideas or business models that have the ability to have access to the capital and the standard operating procedures where a business is going to operate in the interest of the community where it does business and that the owners have a proven track record of reinvesting in community or being operating and behaving in a way that's consistent with the interest of, you know, the municipality or the jurisdiction where that, that license is issued. So unless they're asking and trying to design policy that answers that question first, then I think we'll continue to see unmitigating disasters like we have in LA, like we have in Chicago. You know, the policy hasn't worked in San Francisco or Oakland the way that, that we would hope that it will. And, and now there's a significant opportunity, as we know, more than likely here in the next couple of weeks, the referendum will pass in New Jersey and, and the Northeast states will follow shortly thereafter the path towards social equity and adult use. Uh, and so, so tell us about Fourth Movement. How, how did this come about? What was the original intention? What is it focused on doing? Uh, give us some insight. Well, originally, when we looked at it, we thought about being a vertically integrated business with enough retail licenses to kind of service, you know, uh, inner city cultivation. If you are familiar with like Homeboy Industries, it was more of a Homeboy Industries type of a model. But what we quickly learned is as it relates to capital is that capital respected like the number of licenses. So footprint, because valuations are based upon a multiple of how much volume can you do. And and, you know, the valuation is is indicative of how much capital you can onboard, how much capital you can onboard is indicative of the kind of talent that you can attract and the sophistication of the system and the plan that you can develop and then implement. And so we decided to stay strictly focused on retail and then to attack the opportunity that was in L.A. So in L.A., they decided that they were going to issue 100 social equity licenses. And so we entered into a we developed a program by which we vetted 700 people, interviewed in a detailed way, 300 people and then chose 120 to go through really what was almost a year long training process, 92 of which finished the process in a meritorious training process. And, and when then we chose the best of them, you had to have real estate in order to, to, to apply. So we secured 32 leases in great locations around the city of Los Angeles, and we applied on behalf of 32. We were originally successful with 13. And then since that time, we've been successful with an additional eight. So we've got a total of 21, what they call invoice, which is indicative of, of kind of pre-licensure in the city of Los Angeles. So 21 social equity partners that we intend to stand up their retail businesses over the next few years, which will be the largest footprint of singularly branded dispensaries in the state of California and, and, and certainly with the most concentration in any major city. Yeah. In terms of the, the states or the markets that you're looking to impact, are you primarily focused California? Is this something that you'd love to take to other states? Give us a sense of where you are at that. 
Yeah, we, we definitely know that it's portable. I mean, we trained, we went through a similar process in Illinois, starting with 300 and, and um, trained, you know, 60, and then applied on behalf of 30 in that process. And, you know, Illinois is still working through their process, right? So they, they made an announcement and then the governor said that they're gonna make some adjustments. So we're totally embedded in that process. And we've spent a lot of time in the Northeast, specifically New York, it, both in Albany, working with the governor and his team and, and community stakeholders around our process and to try to determine whether or not we could be of value in, in a process that plays out in New York, similarly in New Jersey. So, yeah, we, we've got our eye on you know what's possible across the country, but you know, we've got a significant number of assets right here in L.A. and and we're focused on getting this off the ground the right way. Yeah. Uh, what's been the hardest part for you? I mean, you've, you've got a couple of different pieces that you've, you've kind of got to get right to make the system and this program work. What, where have been the challenges? Well, today, the hardest part is access to capital, right? So it's capital that's not capital that makes sense, bottom line. To do, that's number one. And then number two is, is city processes. So, you know, it's the regulators and the policymakers and, and um, the time processes that soup to nuts you thought was going to take a year and a half you know, you're at three years. And when you're pre-revenue, that's, that's, you know, it's expensive, it's draining and, uh, you know, makes things very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. And so how many people are you putting through the program or what your end impact? What are your, I guess, how do you measure success in terms of the program? Is it number of businesses? Is it, you know, dollar volume? Is it product volume? What are you hoping to do and how do you measure this? For us, social equity is about people existing equitably in our country, right? So, that means like in LA, it's $600,000 is, is the average, the median cost of a home. So, you know, if you're going to live equitably in LA, can you afford your $600,000 house? Can your kids go to competitive schools? And do you get competitive health outcomes? That's how we know whether or not we're existing equitably. And so does the income that come from this business allow you to do this for yourself and your family? Is, is how we'll determine whether or not we're successful with the opportunities that, we, that we've you know, earned. And so we've got 21 in LA. Our goal is over the next two plus years, two and, a, and maybe a little bit longer than two years to stand up these 21 businesses and that our model is proven to work such that their income is consistent with them producing those outcomes. And that's how we'll be able to determine whether or not we were successful. That's great. And I'm curious on the policy side, like as you've worked with some of these state, city, municipal organizations to work through the process, to stand up these businesses, to help get these you know, businesses started, what's been the kind of response? What's been the kind of challenge? Where do you feel like things are working inside the political kind of regulatory side? Where are they not? Give us some insights there. Well, you know, I think like with other things, I, and, and this is my first real foray into having to deal with policymakers, you know, with this level of intensity and consistency. I've been very supportive of people who I think are generally good policymakers and are aligned with my values, you know, financially supportive for years and years. But in terms of dealing with the bureaucracy every day, this is my first time really, you know, being this knee deep in it. And you've got some policymakers who really understand what you're doing and respect it. You got other policymakers who 
you know, really respond to people who I think are not really positioned to be competitive in the space, but make a lot of noise. And then you've got regulators who sometimes are really activists in and of themselves, but don't have business experience, don't understand the PL, don't understand or really care about what it takes to access capital to facilitate the opportunity. They're really kind of stuck on who gets the opportunity or how many people can we get to get the opportunity and are willing to hold you know, hold up the processes in order to make it be what they think it ought to be. And, and, and that, that's harmful to our ability to, to leverage the resources that we've attracted in order to stand up these businesses efficiently. Uh, and in, in terms of the people that you're kind of finding or recruiting into these programs, what, what generally are you finding? What, who's interested in the cannabis industry that, you know, would be, you know, a good candidate for the program? What, what's your process for kind of finding, selecting, getting people into the program? What does that look like? Yeah. So for us, and I know this from my retail restaurant space, yeah. right? You get people who work their butt off and they can be like a C plus, B minus because they work their ass off and that's great. And we want those people. And then you get people who are naturals and they can be an A if they apply themselves. And so and we want those folks, too. And, you know, there are some people who are natural leaders in a retail space and some people who aren't. Uh, But generally, we're looking for the motor and the character with a proven concept. And when you put the systems in place, it's not rocket science once you've been trained and can do it repetitively. It's not about how people perform in week one or week, you know, month one or three. But, you know, in month 18, do you have it down? Do you understand the P&L backwards and forwards? And, and can you lead a team of somewhere between probably 15 and 35 people to have transaction after transaction, do it the right way, comply with all the regulatory framework and exceed your customers' expectations? And so that is what we're looking for is the character of the individual and the motor. You know, during our training process, we have a room set up and it looks like an NFL draft board, like everybody's picture <laughs> with P-Touch names on it. And, and we'd have about 10 hours of, of homework online during the week. And then we'd see them for four hours on the weekend in person. And our team would be measuring, we'd, you know, clipboards and who shows up on time, who's asking good questions, what's the quality yeah. of the homework, so on and so forth. So it was a totally meritorious process. Yeah. 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 Okay. What are, what are the things that you look for? I mean, you mentioned a couple of these, you know, showing up on time, did the homework. What were big indicators for you in terms of how people showed up for the program that, you know, went to your kind of correlating to ultimate success or, or that would, they could be more successful in the business? Problem solving, the ability to listen, the quality of the questions being asked and, you know, the kind of the nature of the origin of the questions. And then, you know, group projects and what do your fellow people in your groups say about you and how you showed up in those environments? Pretty much indicative of how people are going to treat other people and whether or not they're going to be accountable. Like we know one thing when you're a part of a, of a brand as a Buffalo Wild Wings franchisee, if somebody like sells somebody some raw chicken in Orange County, even though I'm in L.A., it's going to negatively impact my business. Mm-hmm. And so it's really kind of creating this teamwork atmosphere and, and seeing who buys in and, you know, who's going to contribute. We want a, a group of really strong A players, and that's what we're looking for and coaching toward and uh, measuring. Yeah. How much of a system are you giving them in terms of, you know, once they get the business going, like what is it that you've kind of defined? Uh, what do you leave it up to the owner? Like what's, tell me a little bit about that process. From onboarding, we have the HR expertise. We don't hire anybody without them, but we go shoulder to shoulder with them and make sure every I is dotted, every D is, every T is crossed. 
We do, we facilitate the accounting. So the bank account is theirs. They have full visibility to everything, but we make sure that the bills get paid. We facilitate the real estate transactions and we go out and acquire and do the construction and create the prototype around the retail concept called 64 and Hope. And then we facilitate the supply chain. So we go out and negotiate based upon our scale that drops the cost and reduces the cost of sales to the our social equity partners, which allows them to be more profitable. And we leverage the information, BDS, work with our distributor, which is Herbal in California, to know what people are buying and make certain that we're competitive and, and best in class in terms of the product mix that we bring in and the pricing that we're able to 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 get for for that product. Yeah, I'm I'm curious how how much of a benefit is that um, you know that single source pricing. I mean, is is it uh, does it add a little bit or does it add a lot? I mean, I'm I'm curious how how well you've been able to leverage the network that you built. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to equate to a significant discount. You know, what single single unit operators are able to procure versus you know kind of the pressure on us and and um, the phone calls, the incoming that we get based upon you know in a few years having 21 units is a big difference. And then to be able to get volume discounts around the purchasing is, uh, you know, will make a significant difference in terms of the overall profitability of the units. Yeah. And where, um, I mean, if you were to look at other states that are kind of in need of better programs, need of kind of fixing some of these things, where, what states would you be looking at or what states do you feel are, you know, could benefit from a program like this? I think anywhere where people, where any municipality or jurisdiction state that is looking to, you know, help people have an opportunity and put a framework in place to help them be successful. So, you know, providing the capital and all of the standard operating procedures, not only at retail, but those support services that are so critical to businesses, especially when folks don't necessarily have the acumen or experience to be able to to do all of those functions. And so, you know, I don't think that there's a jurisdiction where it doesn't make sense. I think it makes sense in Florida. I think, you know, I think it'll make sense in in Georgia, as they're getting ready to go to medical, but a few years down the road, I'm sure it would be recreational too. I think it makes sense in Virginia. You know, it makes sense everywhere. Yeah. And what as an, I'm just kind of thinking as a, as a broader industry, what, what are some things that we need to do, anyone that's involved in cannabis, to really start to address some of these social justice, social equity issues? I mean, are, are there conversations we should be having? Give us some thoughts that, you know, we should really be thinking about how to get involved. When I take, think about the majority community, I mean, like currently right now, African-Americans have less than 1% of all the licenses that have been in the country, right? Yeah. And so that doesn't make a lot of sense. When I'm talking to the CEOs of, of MSOs and we're talking about the health of the industry moving forward, I'm saying to them this, whether you agree with social equity or not, you recognize that it is a social equity issue that has prevented adult use from moving forward in New York the last three years. You recognize that that's what's been the problem in New Jersey. You recognize that when adult use happens in Florida, that social equity and who gets the licenses is going to be a part of that conversation. Same is going to be true in Georgia and, and, and a lot of other states you know, moving across the country. And as we're looking at banking or whether or not we're going to have more of a States Act framework or some other framework, whether or not we get a new administration around cannabis, we are going to have progressive policymakers federally and at states and and local governments who care about this issue. And so it's in your interest, it's in all of our interests to embrace something that is workable, a real workable model that creates a more inclusive industry and then and then dig in and, 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 and align on what 
some of those programs might look like or what that policy might look like and advocate for it. Or else, you know, um, you, you know, will be trying to drag along policymakers kicking and screaming rather than embracing the economic benefit of the growth of this industry moving forward. Yeah, uh, those are good points. Kareem, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Fourth Movement, what's the best way to get that information? Great. Yeah. Fourth Movement is 4-T-H-M-V-M-T. And we're on all the social media platforms and on Kareem Webb, K-A-R-I-M-W-E-B-B. And I'm available on all of the social platforms as well. We respond to our DMs and and engage with people all across the industry and look forward to hearing what folks are up to and sharing, you know, what we've got going on too. Perfect. I'll make sure that the links uh, and all that information is in the show notes so people can get that. Kareem, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you. Thanks again for the platform. Love what you guys are doing. God bless. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.